Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, I'm excited to explore an area that we've never explored on this podcast before, which is how do venture capitalists get money into their funds and how are they judged on that? So in order to cover this topic, uh, I've invited Thomas Christensen, principal at LGT Capital Partners, one of Europe's leading fund of funds, and on top of that, other type of investments as well. So, But I'll let you, Thomas, walk us through a little bit of that. Welcome to the Thank podcast. you, Carlos. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned when we were chatting earlier, one of the things that I like to ask just to kick things off is, what did you study in school? And what was the first job you did right after you graduated? Yeah, um... I think pretty boring. Uh, I, I studied economics, uh, followed by a master's degree in finance. And then I went into investment banking, master's degree in London and, and took a job in investment banking here in London after that. What year was, was the investment bank? I started in 2002 uh, and left in 2004. Oh, so you, you skipped that, that Lehman Brothers enjoyment moment right around there. I think I got in right after the internet bubble had burst and before things took off again. So it was a couple of quiet years from a transaction perspective, but but still very busy years. Yeah. And then, so what did you do afterwards? Um, afterwards, I went straight to LGT Capital Partners, where I still am today. So I joined LGT Capital Partners 14 years ago. Wow. Okay. And so you've definitely seen your fair share of not only deals, but also of funds. And over, over those years... Um, how many funds have LGT invested in? I'm not sure how many funds we've invested in since, but it's it's in the hundreds. Let's oh, put wow. it like that. Okay. Well, maybe this is a good time for you to walk us through what LGT is and and kind of what you guys do and, and all the different divisions. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're a global alternative asset manager, um, which means that we invest in non-traditional assets. Uh, roughly half of what we do is in private markets which means uh, private equity, venture capital, private debt. Um, the other half is in more liquid strategies. Okay. One of the things that I, I like to, to use, and, and as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, this podcast is designed to, to help people understand how, how the VC industry is shaped by the money that, that funds it, but also how money flows into non-public investments. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit that how that cycle works on, on average. So, you know, you, you look at any ecosystem and the money starts from something, whether it be a family fund, whether it be a pension fund, whether it be a government fund, or whether it be uh, an endowment from, from like a university or from like a, a teacher's pension pool, and how that inflates into a larger collective pool, and then how that gets trickled down into VC funds. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of, of what that looks like. Big fish, small fish, smaller fish, smallest fish. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're what you call a, a fund of funds, which means that we have a fund that invests into, among other venture capital funds. Our clients are uh, institutional asset owners or allocators. That means it can be pension funds, it can be endowment funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, or larger family offices. Um, these asset owners or allocators typically try to construct a portfolio that is well diversified 
Um, today, for most, that means having an allocation to private markets, i.e. non-liquid uh, equity and, and in some cases debt. Um, this is typically a relatively small portion of their asset base. So think anywhere between 5 and 15%. Um, for many, um, allocating such a small portion, uh, relative portion, of their assets, um, it is easier to outsource that investment strategy to external providers mm -hmm. such as ourselves. Uh, and so the service that we provide to our clients is um, in Europe and in European venture capital to make it, it more specific and relevant today. Our job is to know the European capital, uh, sorry, venture capital ecosystem. That means knowing the three, 400 venture capital funds in the market, uh, picking the ones that we think are the best, uh, putting them together in a portfolio that is well diversified and that we think can achieve very solid returns. Mm -hmm. uh, so our clients through our fund of funds in European venture capital uh, will get a diversified exposure to European venture that if they were to do it themselves, they would have to meet with call it two, three hundred venture capital funds mm -hmm. and analyze them in detail. Mm. So why why venture? I mean, I think there's a, a debate as to whether or not uh, venture should even exist as an asset class for a fund of fund in the sense that it, the, the risks are higher, the returns on average seem to be lower, you know, when you when you aggregate them. And now I'm just pushing down my entire industry, but I figured, and I'll let you defend it rather than me defend it. But maybe walk us through how it is that people decide that instead of going into private equity where they can have like a more guaranteed return or, or some other, how did, how is it that these funds then come to you and then say, Hey, I would like to engage with you for this asset versus that one, or rather than just, just give me a return. Just give me the biggest return you can get. I think most people want the biggest return that they can get. Mm -hmm. um, it's also, I think, well accepted that if you spread your risk, you may uh, not have the highest possible return, but on a risk-adjusted basis, you can do better. And and so the reason people invest in, into venture capital today, uh, I think are several, but it's typically then a very small part of their total assets. So if you say 10% of total assets is private equity or private markets, um, maybe only 10% of that is venture capital. So you're talking about 1%. Of, of, for instance, a pension fund's assets being in, in venture capital. Obviously, for some, that percentage higher, some even non-existent. What do you get for that? You, you, you get several things. You get the, the opportunity for outsized returns if you do well. You, uh, also get an insight into what type of business models are being disrupted mm -hmm. and what new technologies are emerging to, to threaten your existing. Uh, business models and businesses. And in general, you probably get a little bit more exposure to to what you might call a, a, a technology trend or an innovation trend in, in that uh, most private equity funds have rather limited technology exposure. Some have some software exposure in larger companies. But if you want to include in your portfolio exposure to really new innovation, uh, venture capital is typically the, the best way to do that. Mm. Okay, so it's partially returns uh, in a controlled fashion and then partially intel. Um, which then brings up a different question. It's like, why the hell would you care about some of these things? If you're such a big behemoth, why would you care about this intel? 
And maybe what you can do is, is walk us through a little bit about the, the nature of how these relationships engage. So, for example, uh, at Seed Camp, we, we engage with, you know, have conversations with uh, fund of funds like yourself. And, you know, I could probably name drop a few others, like some of the ones that invest into, uh, you know, like British Business Bank and EIF and, and some of these other names that maybe founders have heard of uh, just from casual conversations with VCs. But I don't know if I've necessarily heard the ones that invest in you and then who invests in them or are they the last stop? And then walk us through kind of what their motivations are to want to be so plugged into what these startups are. If they're so big, can they actually action anything by having that intel? I think the ones that want the intel and use it can. Uh, it's not all that do and, and, and have that desire uh, to really use that intel. Uh, I think some use it as a, a general innovation exposure, mm -hmm. as I said, and saying this is part of my, my portfolio where I run a little bit more risk. But the upside from participating in, in, in more innovative businesses that will disrupt mm -hmm. uh, the, the more traditional businesses um, make it worth the risk. Mm -hmm. and, and I think looking back, uh, if you've done venture well, uh, I think we can show that your returns have actually outperformed. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but as an industry, uh, I think it's fair that, that venture looking in the rearview mirror has, has on average not done terribly well, not outperformed at least. But back to the point about, and we'll come back to performance numbers because I want to definitely hear some, and I think that it would be great for the audience to hear it. Uh, walk us through some of the na the usual names that you would go and fundraise from. Yeah, so who we would go and fundraise from is, is a mix of, without mentioning names specifically, but it can be sovereign wealth funds, uh, both in in, in Europe uh, and and in uh, in the Asia Pacific region. Um, we talk quite a bit to pension funds, mm -hmm. um, both uh, larger state pension funds, but also smaller pension funds throughout Europe, uh, North America, and, 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 and again, the Asia Pacific region and, uh, and the Middle East. Um, we then uh, work with some endowments um, and some family offices. And, and these are people that for, for a variety of reasons, as I said, would like to have exposure to either innovation or they think they can su supplement their return uh, profile with venture capital, understanding that if things go well, we should outperform their average, mm -hmm. um, but that there is a risk component mm -hmm. of going in early and backing early stage companies. I think the, the reason why I was asking you this sort of workflow of, of funds that are bigger and bigger and bigger is because I think there's a point where just for the, the sake of and those that are listening to this podcast mm -hmm. to visualize the big fish all yeah. the way down small fish like the pension funds are, are the biggest that you can get where the next stage up are literally a bunch of individuals like teachers or whatever yeah exactly so so that's a fair sorry that's a good way of, of, of selling it so you have call it teachers police officers firefighters to, to mm -hmm. use the the US pension funds mm -hmm. who month after month, pay, pay money into their pension mm -hmm. scheme. That pension scheme can grow rather large in some of the bigger states, mm -hmm. in the U.S. especially, um, and is managed by a typically a relatively small team mm -hmm. uh, of, of, individual, mm -hmm. of individuals who are allocating these assets with a view of earning a good rate of return so that when the teachers and firefighters retire, mm -hmm. they basically have good retirement savings. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they need to multiply those pension payments through investments. Yeah. And part of that capital then flows to us mm -hmm. when they want to invest into private markets. Yeah. And then 
you guys into funds and then funds into startups and so forth, different stages. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now we can go into, we, we use that as a visual analogy. Mm -hmm. Let's go through expected returns across that entire stack and what, what expected returns are and what ideal returns are. So for example, if we, I, I did a recent sort of research on, on S&P 500. So like a public market annually uh, over the years, like should be about seven to eight percent. Like if you are not beating seven to eight percent with some sort of private investment fund, then you're probably better off just putting it into the S and P five hundred and off you go. So what what is it that let's say a pension fund promises, and and it might promise security, which is different than you know it promises lack it promises reduced volatility to its constituents, but it might not might not it might have a variety of products. So maybe walk us through, if we start from that pensioner all the way through pension fund to LGT and other similar fund of funds to venture capital funds, and then I can, if necessary, plug the last gap, which is what does a good startup return look like for yeah. VC. And that way, the listeners can have a good picture of how the return expectations affect the strategy, which we'll discuss later. Yeah. So without knowing too much what individual pension funds mm -hmm. target, um, let's just for sake of argument saying that, that a pension fund aims at, at earning a rate of return of 5% per mm -hmm. year. Um, that's probably quite high. Mm -hmm. um, typically, a lot of their assets are in, in bonds or, or mm -hmm. fixed income securities, which earn 1% or, or, or around there. Mm -hmm. um, that means that for the remainder of the portfolio, they need to earn more. What you get, obviously, with fixed income is you get security. And if, if you're paying in for your pension life, you'd like the, the security and the downside protection. But it means that when people come to us uh, looking at, at private markets, you need to outperform that average in a substantial manner. What our investors expect of us, you, you should ask them. Uh, what we think we should return to our investors is somewhere in the range between uh, 15 to 20 percent on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. and, and that means when, when we look at venture capital funds, we, we, we actually deal less in IRRs and percentages that we deal more in multiples uh, because starting a company and uh, growing it until an exit can take a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes a company gets acquired quickly and you have a great IRR, but a lower multiple. Mm -hmm. um, we, we're in it for multiple. Uh, so, so we say we need to double our money mm -hmm. with our venture capital fund investments. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, not all funds are going to achieve that, mm -hmm. uh, which means that when when we look at a fund, uh, we need to believe that that fund can do at least three times the money mm -hmm. uh, or return our invested capital three times because some will fail to do that and, and some might even lose money. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess it's on you to explain what you as a VC expect of companies, but, yeah. but at the end of the day... If, if I was to put myself in your shoes and talk to an entrepreneur, de depending on on the strategy that your fund is, is pursuing, but if you're an early stage strategy, each company should really be able to return your fund, yeah. right? Yeah, and 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 just to complete that picture, the way that we the way that most VCs will look at it, as you said, is can this company return my fund, which then becomes a very difficult one to for somebody to visualize because you now need to have a, a mental picture of not only the size of the fund, but the percentage ownership and whether, what the valuation is. But so to keep it quick and dirty, it'll be like every one investment needs to be able to exceed 10 X. 
Like that's just a quick and dirty that everyone kind of uses. But in reality, for it to return a fund, sometimes it needs to be more like a 50x, depending on how much a VC owns. That's why VCs are quite sensitive to percentage ownership in a company because it can affect how much that is. But if, if we trickle that upwards, back up the chain. Can I interrupt? Yeah. Because I think when, sorry, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but when we look at venture funds and we evaluate venture funds, percentage ownership is one of the key things we look at. Yeah. Uh, just to no, and, and it's and it's and that's actually a, a topic that we discuss internally with with our founders is this idea that you know depending on and now we're going to get really macroeconomic and since you got the economics degree you can correct me on this but basically at the end of the day the, the world revolves around um, how the public markets affect the perception of uh, larger companies to acquire smaller companies and as that goes up collectively the tolerance for higher valuations goes up and as that goes up the percentage ownership is affected partially because your perception of what your smaller or bigger stake will take on a larger valuation will net the same return. So if if, mm-hmm. if the public market's valuations go up, then that means that you can potentially take a little less because in theory you will net out the same. But in, that's why in downturns, and there's some pretty interesting data from PitchBook that kind of show this, in downturns, your reaction's opposite. You want to own more because then that's a defensive mechanism by which to protect that you get the same effective cash return. Yes. And so the the what that means, I guess, without sort of going too much into verbal math, which is kind of tricky without a drawing board, is that VCs generally want to have uh, two or three companies that exceed that 10x in their portfolio so that they can then return to you at 3x. And the problem, therefore, and you brought it up as, as, as you were talking about expected returns, is that you have this issue of timing. And for a VC, you have very little control over when you invest in a company, especially early stage funds. You know, you have the average is about six years or so of gestation period before a company is even ready to, to exit. Yeah. But on the flip side, you're being judged on IRR because the pension fund has to pay that pensioner a constant rate because that's kind of what the pension is. And so maybe the key question is like, do you think the model is broken? Do you think that this sort of differential or not maybe a clutch, you know, the clutch mechanism in a car. Mm-hmm. If the, if you are effectively the clutch between a non-time based return world, the, the venture world, and the time-based annualized return based world of the pensioner and these other funds that we expect sort of an annual return, mm-hmm. are you the clutch that prevents these two things from being a stalled engine? And does that imply that that there's something broken there and that we should push the, the timings that and the fund structures in a way that more align with the way companies grow and sell? I think that's really, really difficult. There's been some attempts at it. Um, because venture capital is such a small part of most portfolios, there is uh, typically an understanding that IRR can be very difficult to predict and that multiple is probably the best indicator of what a fund manager, be it a venture fund or a fund of fund, can achieve over time on a repeatable basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple is probably the best indicator of that. So it's, I'd say that there's, there's probably not as much focus on IRR and venture investing as there is in, in for instance, buyouts mm-hmm. investment, investing, uh, but there is some. I think what we've managed to show is that you can have... Uh, good multiples 
and a good IRR um, in, in the same construct. What helps as a fund of fund is we, we, we primarily invest into funds, but we also at times co-invest directly into companies alongside our, our VCs, managers. Um, that typically takes the form of we'll go in, co-invest alongside uh, a VC fund like yourselves when some of your companies have reached, call it 10 million of revenue or more. Um, that's a way for us to mitigate the, the high risk uh, early uh, part of the portfolio. It means that the multiple we're getting on our investment there is not as high as the early one, mm-hmm. but there's less risk and and the, the time to exit is shorter because we go in later. Mm-hmm. In addition, we also buy f- stakes in funds on a secondary basis so we can come in to a fund three or four years or five years after mm-hmm. the fact, which means that, again, the returns will be quicker, mm-hmm. hence having an improved IRR. Mm-hmm. So as a fund of fund, you're able to pull several levers mm-hmm. to achieve both your IRR and your multiple goals. Yeah. Okay, so but it sounds like you are, in effect, doing several things to, to generate the kind of time-based returns that you're required to do but at the same time manage the issues that, that come in, intrinsic with investing in very time-lumpy investments, which venture works in. But, I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll keep on pushing on the, on the question. Do you, do you think that there is a need for redoing or rethinking the way that fund models work? I mean, maybe this is a good time to, like, highlight some of the key terms for any listener who is not familiar with them. You know, so some of them... And, and I'll kick one off and yeah. then you'll see where I'm going with this. Like one of them is like 10 year life, right? Like funds generally are considered to be structured around a 10 year life, meaning you raise the money and you have to return it in 10 years. And of course you, you can sometimes ask for an extension typically of two more years, but maybe you can walk through some of like the, the critical key things that define a, a fund. Yeah. So I guess we're looking at market standards as indeed 10 plus two years mm-hmm. of extensions Often extensions are granted beyond that. And another market standard is typically around 2% management fee. That means that a venture capital firm charges 2% of its funds commitments, which is the same as its fund size, mm-hmm. per year to its investors to invest in companies, monitoring them and, and exiting them. Mm-hmm. Then typically fund managers charge a carry or a a performance fee, um, which traditionally lies around 20%. That is earned on on, on gains uh, generated from the investments. Mm-hmm. At times, there is a hurdle rate involved, which means you need to return investments plus a hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be IRR-based or, or multiple-based. And I think those are some of the key terms mm-hmm. uh, that, that VCs have to contend with. I think the... The, the terms are pretty standard. They vary a little bit. What's important to remember is that 2% is, is one thing. If you have a 50 million fund, it's something entirely different. If you have a f- fund of 250 million. And, and so that then, then becomes a bit a view on what kind of organization lies behind that you need to feed with, with that management fee. Mm. Um, so if, if you look at, and one thing we probably should add is, is a, 
I know because you brought it up in the panel where we where we last spoke was GP commitment. So that the commitment that individuals who are uh, VC professionals have to put into their own fund for the LPs to feel like they're they have some skin in the game. Yeah. And I really love the comment that you made at the time uh, for obvious reasons. But which one of these terms and 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 I'm hoping you you will repeat that comment on on air. But I don't what, remember what comment it was. But all right, I'll prod you. I'll prod you. <laughs> I'll prod you. But basically, these terms all come together to create the boundaries upon which VCs operate. And I'm curious as to in your years of experience doing this, if there are any terms that you would reconsider, rewrite. And then the reason why I'm asking this is because I've seen in my tenure in venture how certain terms that were like bog standard in 2007 have now been reconsidered as either predatory or negative or whatever. Like I remember Series A funds in 2007 using redemption, like forced redemption rights. So if, five, if they hadn't gotten a return in five years, the founders needed to pay them back. You know, like that was not unusual. And now they're completely eradicated, right? And, and I'm curious as to if in the fund-to-fund world, if there is a similar sort of transition of thought. And the, the one that you brought up in the panel was that there is no correlation between the amount of money that a GP commits to the fund and whether or not they perform well. And that was the, the one that you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but there might be other ones where you feel like, you know what, like the industry needs to change. And these are some key points where that change could come from. Yeah, no, I think we've we've looked at it statistically, and it, it's not always obvious that there is a correlation between GP commitment and returns. Doesn't mean that it's not important for us how much a GP puts with its fund in its own funds. It indicates alignment of interest, mm-hmm. and that that we have between ourselves and the fund manager. Mm-hmm. That means even if things don't go well, uh, and they're not going to earn their performance fee they still have some skin in the game to take care of the portfolio and not going to run off. Um, th- there are some funds that have done extremely well with very low GP commitments and, and that keep it like that. There, as an investor, you, you have to look at, you know, who are the people I'm investing in, in, in the VC firm? Are they motivated by having feet to the fire with, uh, with economics? Or is it rather feet to the fire in, in, in way of having their reputation on the line, which can be a much stronger motivator for some people. And I'm imagining the same goes for founders. Yeah. So there, there has been various degree of correlations, but it's still important to us that people have skin in the game. Having said that, skin in the games is, is typically a, um, a relative term, which means for some people, 150,000 is a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people... Three million is a lot, and people also need to live, mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be under pressure if they don't perform to start doing acting irrationally. Mm-hmm. And people also need to reserve capital to invest in the following fund. Mm-hmm. So those so are all that, things so we think of. But in terms of, of terms that mm-hmm. that should be changed, I think it's very difficult to say that there's anything in particular that should change. Uh, you could argue that that some firms make too much money on management fees. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's self-adjusting, mm-hmm. i.e. if some VCs make a lot of money on management fees and, the, and they don't perform, then the market will go somewhere else mm-hmm. and it will impact 
maybe to a lesser extent the percentage they can charge, but it will impact the fund size that they can raise. Mm -hmm. So the absolute amount of dollars to them becomes lower for management fee. So that kind of works. What you have to look at when you invest into a venture capital fund is is the the, the total expense, right? Which means 2% a year for 10 years is 20% of my commitment that becomes uh, a cost. And that's why we need our our funds to return at least three times the money. Yeah. I I think one of the tricky things, which is I think founders also experience, is that there's always the outlier startup who sets the terms, right? They set the, to use the VC Mm -hmm. fund analogy, they set the fees at higher than 2%. But for the most world of startups, most of them have one VC who gives them a term sheet and they pretty much have to take terms on what they're given. And, and I guess with, with the fund to fund world, especially in Europe, there's a lot of things that are imposed on VC fund managers that could potentially be seen as, as part of the reason why the industry has struggled. And I'll give you one example. And I'm, I'm one, this is just because we were just touching on it. You know, I think that first time fund managers, especially young ones that come from an industry or come from a generation that is exposed to new technologies is probably prevented from entering into the world of venture, even though they would make amazing asset managers um, because they can't afford the GP commitment. So that means that if you are a, a budding, amazing technologist and, uh, and you want to start a venture fund and you have all the reasons by which you're going to have qualified deal flow, you just simply do not have the cash to do the GP commit. You have now, uh, and there's, and I think it's less you, but I know some funds that would, some fund of funds that would just be like, nope, sorry, that's it. But I mean, and, and that's kind of what I mean by like some of these terms, you know, the, the expectations of them bring upon certain restrictions on who can become a VC or how the returns can be like, um, yeah. how, how fees can sometimes be squashed lower, preventing teams from growing, whether it be, um, you know, super carry versus regular carry. Just exploring these ideas as to what mm-hmm. evolution of these terms could come. Yeah. I, I mean, for, for, I think, as I said before, GP commitment, so how much a, a venture capitalist puts into their own fund is, is relative for us. It needs to be meaningful. Now, is it 150000 or is it $3 million? That depends on your personal situation. Even 150000 pretty much predisposes it to like older, you know, well, yes. dudes and that are kind of, you know, towards the highlight of a certain part of their career, you know, so like... It excuse it a little. Bit. No, I know, but but the the way to understand with with one hundred and fifty thousand GP commitment is is that when you start investing a fund, you typically have a, a th- two to three year investment period after which you've called around sixty percent mm-hmm. of the the commitment. So you have three years relatively evenly to have one hundred thousand called in this example. In the meantime, if, if you have a fund of, of 50 million and you're charging 2% a year, mm-hmm. you actually have an income of a million a year yeah. to cover 30 grand of, of, yeah. of investment capacity. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that GP commit should ever prevent anyone from starting a firm. Yeah. And I'm not aware that it has been, but, yeah. but if it has, I think that's, that's certainly a problem, right? That's mm-hmm. not the base on which people like us should, should be judging mm-hmm. uh, new fund managers. I mean, another crazy idea is this, you know, if you look at the way startups are, are funded, they're funded like through a series of series, mm-hmm. you know, whereas funds are raised as one, yes, there's a first close and yes, there's a second close. But for the most part, the gap between the first and the second is, is mostly about fundraising, not about execution. 
Is there, is, do you think that there's a, the future 20 years from now, 30 years from now, do you think that we'll be living in a world with micro fundraisings or is it that the logistics of fundraising is just impossible and you will never get to the point where it's through technology simple enough? It's a very interesting question. So this is probably where I'm too old school, but I think it's, it's very difficult to imagine because you will need very sophisticated investors that are able to evaluate on an ongoing basis the quality of an underlying portfolio, which means if I was supposed to do that today, that would mean that I would have to take a view on on, on SeedCamp's early fund mm-hmm. and its or early portfolio and its development mm-hmm. to see whether I want to come into that portfolio after three years. Mm-hmm. If if I was qualified to do that, mm-hmm. I should be having your job. I shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing my job. Mm-hmm. Um now, is is it possible to imagine a world where access to venture funds is given to a much broader audience, mm-hmm. so no longer just institutional investors? And we should probably have said before that typically if you can't invest two, three or four million into a fund, you can't invest because you need to be a, a quote-unquote institutional investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's a way of lowering that bar and, and making... Uh, funds uh, ac- accessible to the masses, so to speak, via something like AngelList or similar type of platforms, then then maybe that becomes possible. What I would fear is is that you would have a a market where investors invest based on rumors uh, and based on very little actual information. Because mm-hmm. in order to invest in a qualified manner in such a system, you would need a lot of information on the underlying companies mm-hmm. that you currently have in the public markets. Mm-hmm. But if, if your entrepreneurs and your portfolio were to on a quarterly basis report on a long list of KPIs so that individuals like myself and and my extended family mm-hmm. <laughs> could invest into your fund, then they might be distracted yeah. from actually building the business just by pure reporting requirements. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I guess that, that question was designed to see, like, in a forward-looking way, what would be the evolution of this? Mm-hmm. Now, let me maybe flip the, the ask the opposite end of that question, the other side of the coin of that question, which is, and I'll give you an example for it. When, when we started investing in SeedCamp, one of the things that we were exposed to was how emerging markets were treating venture capital. And the way that they would treat it was that the, the the more decoupled they were from the information flow of what was standard, the more toxic terms we saw. So the more like, egregious consumption of equity from the founder for relatively low amounts of, of capital, some cases in the order of like 50% ownership uh, for something like 100,000. And so, you know, we're looking at that declining, almost eradicated now, mm-hmm. but it was behavior that was happening because there was absence of capital and there was also lack of awareness. There was lack of awareness of what was a benevolent uh, investor's role mm-hmm. and best practices. If you know, you've know you been investing in funds and uh, similar to us, uh, you co-invest with other fund of funds. You don't just, you're not the sole investor in a fund. You are yeah. usually investing alongside other people. What are the things that you've noticed that you think are preventing the venture capital industry as a whole from moving along faster because you're seeing other fund of funds still push and that create a toxicity issue for the fund managers to execute with freedom. I don't think that 
our peers are are as bad as some people think. I certainly mm-hmm. think that we're very nice, mm-hmm. but I can see that sometimes there are non-commercial terms being pressed upon fund managers mm-hmm. that seem egregious or or, or counterproductive. I, I think it's very important to remember that these always come from a rational place, mm-hmm. from the perspective of an investor that imposes something. Mm-hmm. And it's then up to the fund manager to accept that those terms or not, as in when you extend a term sheet, are you willing to accept the terms or not? The the challenge, I think, has been that there is maybe certain instances where some terms are imposed on managers by a very, very small subset of investors, and those investors can impose uh, those, those terms because they can represent a disproportionate portion of a given fund. And, and that can be frustrating, certainly. But at the end of the day, you're, you're in a market where it, it's an open market, i.e. if you believe that you can get better terms somewhere else, mm-hmm. feel free to go get them. The, I think the challenge is... It is and it isn't, right? And this is exactly the same problem that these companies that I mentioned in 2007 had, which is they literally, in some cases, from the countries they were originating from, could not afford with the burn rate that they had to fly to the valley to get so-called better terms. Further to that, if they had shown up to the valley, what would have happened is that a typical VC at the, in 2007 would have said something like, you know, we'll invest in, in, in U.S. companies, so mm-hmm. good luck with that. And, and I think that that's probably the illusion that, that sometimes is portrayed, that, you know, capital is efficient and will go equally everywhere, but it isn't, and, and it seems to be ge- geographically ring-fenced. And what do you think, how do you think fund of funds shape the economy in that sense? Because to some extent, like, it depends on how many fund of funds there are, which will then depend on how many VC funds can exist, which then means how many startups can get backed. Yeah. So I think it's important to remember that that it's not only fund of funds that are investors and funds, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a number of other constituents and yeah. some people that chose, that, that choose to invest directly and not through people like ourselves. Um I'd actually like to back it up a little bit because I think it's an interesting analogy uh, to, 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 to a European company that, that can't afford to go somewhere else. Um, and, and, and I was thinking, actually, the, the market is probably now evolving kind of from the bottom up mm-hmm. in terms of the companies and what they've shown rather than investors changing behavior from, from the top. Yeah. Right? And ideally, we can meet somewhere in the middle and create a better ecosystem. So to go back and, and do a long detour, and then I'll come back to your question, I think today those uh, companies can go to the valley if they're good enough, and they can get uh, term sheets if they're good enough. The bar is certainly very, very high, mm-hmm. but at least now they can come to London and meet a larger number of VCs than mm-hmm. they could before. The reason VCs in London are, are happy to meet these people and invest in them is because you've seen that good companies can come out of, again, quote unquote, obscure geographies that maybe are not that obvious historically. So the market has taught you that there could be something really interesting here and you are less biased because of time and track record of, of these companies against them, right? Mm-hmm. So they stand a better chance. Mm-hmm. I think if you lift that one level up to the venture funds today, when they go marketing, there is today a lot less skepticism than there was five, 10 years ago, because investors have taken note that really good companies 
have come out of Europe. Because of those great companies, the funds who invested in them have got really, really solid returns. So a seed stage fund can still return three times the money or more because two or three of their 30 investments really made it big. And we've now proven that in Europe, you can have 10 billion plus exits, right? Which at the end of the day is what people are looking for to, to generate those outsized returns. Mm-hmm. And so I think the companies, if you like, have shown that they can generate good returns for the funds, who in terms have shown the fund of funds that we can help you generate good returns. What is now upon the fund of funds and for us to create a link is to sit in the middle and explain to call it asset allocators, but pension funds, endowments, etc. Say, listen, this is a really fertile market and it's only growing, right? There, Every year there's more and more companies popping up that are super exciting. Mm-hmm. They're not all going to be unicorns or decacorns, but you have got such a rich environment that this is just growing constantly. And, and we're in a bit of a virtuous circle now, finally. There's a lot of interest in participating in that mm-hmm. from a high level in terms of the asset owners that we spoke about before. It's difficult to access, as I said before, because with relatively small staff to to survey a market of a couple of hundred or three or four hundred funds is just very time consuming. And, and given that you only allocate a tiny portion of your portfolio, you need often someone to do that for you, hence fund of funds. I think it's then on the fund of funds to embrace the development in the market, right? At the end of the day, we should be the experts, mm-hmm. right? Which means we should see the market development before yeah. it happens. Yeah. If if we don't do that, we're maybe not doing our job very well. Yeah, right? you should. So, I mean, it sounds like, by the way, when I use the word fund of funds, I know you, you corrected me on that because there are other institutions that are not fund of funds. I'm using the word sort of as, as an umbrella term for anybody who funds a fund. So that includes Fair. the wealth okay. funds and pension yeah. funds and whatnot, just for simplicity's sake. But, you know, you bring up this interesting point about the best fund of funds, to some extent, are not waiting for this lag, right? This lag of a 10-year lag where stuff happens. Because the problem is that if there aren't enough VC funds being created, there isn't enough money going into potentially good companies, which are now underfunded because there's not enough VCs. And so, therefore, it's like an unvirtuous circle because not enough money going into the VC funds, not enough money going into the startups. Therefore, there's no successes for then those people to cycle. As you said, we're now on an upswing, right? Which is that there's enough good success stories coming out of Europe that now fund of funds are getting more money from larger institutionals from all over the world. And therefore, the European ecosystem is starting to look good. Now, you still have that lag. And as a consequence of that lag, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are about the other extreme, which is when an ecosystem is overfunded. Do you think that the U.S., as an extreme example of a mature ecosystem, do you think it's, and, and some of the valuations that some early stage companies are getting before they have anything, do you think that's an example of where 10 years from now we'll look at the vintage of those funds that were raised in the last two years investing in these companies at 15 million pre at the seed stage are going to be returning absolutely nothing and that those larger fund of funds should have been better served by investing that capital instead of US-based funds into more European-based funds or even maybe, I don't know, Latin American funds because there is no one there yet? That's a really difficult question to answer. I So I, there's a couple of observations with this. This is a personal view, right? That if you invest into a company at, at a pre-money valuation before any material proof of concept, mm-hmm. and the pre-money valuation is 5 or 15, mm-hmm. if, if the, the 15 million pre 
company goes to zero, then the five million pre-company would also have gone to zero. Yeah. So I think there will be winners and there will be money made on the winners. Now, are you an environment, especially in the US, maybe Asia Pacific as well? I'm, I'm less familiar with both of those regions, but where prices are too high, I, I think it's difficult to say there's a market pricing for these things. Mm-hmm. It means that investors expect to make good returns off of those prices. Mm-hmm. And f- for the most part, or at least a very substantial part, those investors are experienced and have done very well in the past. Now, are they operating in a more crowded market today that pushes up prices? Yes. On, on the flip side, if, if you think that innovation is going to keep uh, dominating more and more industries, then there should be plenty of, of white space, so to speak, to, to attack and, and keep making for higher returns. I think what I sometimes think is, is a bit odd is that people want Europe to look more like the US from a funding perspective. Mm-hmm. Personally, and this you can never judge an entire industry by a few examples, but it seems like some in, some companies, in particular in the US, uh, just because you hear more about that, but I'm, I'm sure the same is, is the case at times in Asia, raise an enormous amount of capital and that we have seen instances, uh, some more public than others, of that capital being maybe not totally squandered, but maybe not spent in the most efficient manner mm. as to create equity value, right? So, mm. so clearly several hundred millions of dollars going to companies before they've built a basic infrastructure and how they're going to operate as a mm. company and how they're going to build out their organization that can probably lead to some mistakes in terms of capital allocation. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think if you invest in Europe and you look at Europe today, you should not necessarily want hundreds of millions available to go into any company raising a C or a D round, mm-hmm. right? You need to think very hard about what is the capital going to be spent on and is this the best use of this capital now? So it sounds to me like you do evaluate the strategy of the fund very closely, not only the sector or the geography. Maybe you can walk us through when you're when a VC comes VC team comes to pitch you, what are the things that you look for to determine success? You know, in the startup land we talk about the customer market and and the size of it and the product market fit. And we, we use a lot of this terminology, which I'm not going to go into in a particular podcast, but there's got to be some equivalent mm-hmm. series of, of, yeah. of checks that you guys have. And I'm curious as to, is the, is your industry crippled by stereotypes that are lagging? Because that's what was working, you know, a decade ago. Probably. So we look for different things depending on what type of fund is being raised. Mm-hmm. Maybe you start at, at kind of the, 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 the more traditional, larger firms. There are quite a few in Europe now mm-hmm. and many in the US. If you come to us and you raise call it 400 million plus in fund size or even 300 million plus in fund size. Our view is that in order to return that money three times, so say you raise 300, you should really be distributing a billion to your investors. If, if you do the math of the average ownership at exit for your best companies after dilution, mm-hmm. it's probably, let's say 10% for, for ease of math. But that means that as a fund, you need to invest into companies that ultimately need to have 10 billion of equity value, right? Yeah. And, and you're investing in early stage. Yeah. That's really, really tough. It is. So if you can't prove to us that you can A, sniff these companies out early, also evaluate and pick the best ones and get access to them, 
and be some sort of value add along the way for the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. so that, that you, you're being recommended to the next cohort. Mm-hmm. If you can't prove that you've done that consistently, it's really difficult for me mm-hmm. to find conviction in you as a fund manager mm-hmm. because there's no proof of concept effectively, right? Yeah. I'm grossly exaggerating here. If we go down and we look at the, the seed stage, so go for the three, 400 million funds, to the 50 million funds, mm-hmm. I think there are fewer funds that have a long history. So, and, and it takes longer the earlier you go in, mm-hmm. right? So there, uh, as opposed to the US, you have some funds that have now shown that they consistently have picked one or two or even three for the very best funds, billion plus dollar companies at seed stage. In the absence of that, what do we look for in a venture firm? And this may be where we're dinosaurs and we should be looking for something else. The way we look at it is you, you have the same premise, right? Whatever you're raising, I need to believe that you can distribute that at least three times to, to our funds. Mm-hmm. And that means that ownership is really important, as is fund size mm-hmm. and obviously size of company at exit, right? In addition to that, the way we look at, at Europe, in any given year, if you look at seed deals in Europe, there's probably 2,000 happening in Europe in any given year. If your strategy is seed in Europe, you're going to have to plow through 2,000 deals a year. That, that's a lot. And the, the best companies are not going to look pretty at that stage. So, so digging through that, identifying diamonds in the rough at that early stage can be really, really difficult. And the odds of having such a broad funnel are probably that you're going to miss quite a few. So what we look for, for right or wrong is to figuring out who are the VCs that are the, the go-to guys in their space, guys or girls. So if you are a, a VC that is focused on AI, uh, as an example, I need to believe that if, if a founder of an, of an AI company asks in his network of other AI founders or enthusiasts, guys, I'm raising a seed capital round. I need half a million to a million, mm. Who would, what, what investor should I go to? Mm-hmm. The investor we want to have our money with is the one that hits the top three list of seven of the 10 buddies of this founder. Mm-hmm. Because that means that within AI, you're going to have as a fund manager, a lot of qualified deal flow, right? Because friends, friend will recommend friends, but people recommend their good friends more, so to speak. So Hopefully you're qualified. Mm -hmm. You then probably don't see a lot of social media Mm -hmm. deal flow, Mm -hmm. but within AI, you're going to see everything there is to see. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have maybe not 2,000 deals a year to evaluate, but two or 300. Yeah. And that means you can spend more time on each of them really digging in. You're going to have more experience to identify the the best ones. So that's a lot of what we look for. Yeah, those are great things to look for. And and I guess there's a cheeky question I want to ask you now, which is, you know, everybody has a miss. You know, every VC has an uh, <laughs> anti-portfolio, right? And so, uh, you know, we wrote up a blog post of the companies that we've invested in and the ones that we haven't invested in and, 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 and just saying this is our anti-portfolio. And we always take a look at why we didn't invest in those companies and re- refine our thinking as to why we did invest in them. In some cases, they're perfectly good reasons and, and we wouldn't change them. In other cases, we're like, shit, that was a dumb assumption and, and we were wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And we won't make that mistake again. And, um, you know, one one example of, of something where I, like as a concept, I was, when when, when I left the my sort of tech world hat, I was enamored with ideas more than the people behind the execution for those ideas. And, and I've been long since corrected around that. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm, I'm a lot more 
cognizant that the idea is, it takes a second or a backstage to the, the people behind the idea. And so I'm curious in, in your career, what have been the fun, what has been a, a, a miss that you look back on and you say, yeah, I should have invested in those guys. And, and what was the cognitive mistake that prevented it from happening? So I'm going to say that there's been a lot that I've put it on me that I've missed. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're firm. We invest together that we've missed. It's really difficult to figure out what the cognitive miss mm-hmm. has been. Especially in our business, there there are two factors that are important. One is that it takes a really long time to figure out mm-hmm. whether a fund is good versus a company. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys invest in in people as much as we do, mm-hmm. but we really invest in people. And and when we evaluate a VC, it is very very people driven. Obviously, what lies behind those people. I'm trying to think. I, I'm tempted to say that the cognitive miss is is probably that we. We've been too conservative on backing younger, less proven teams, but that's purely based on gut. I'm not sure that's actually true because the flip side is when you invest in funds, one thing that is that every company, this fund investors are exciting and they pick the right ones, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other things that play into to how you manage a venture fund. There's what is your reserves? How do you make sure that you stay disciplined when mm-hmm. things get either exciting or go down the drain? Uh, how, how do you plan a diversification of a portfolio? Do you, uh, do you lose focus and start to go wider? Mm-hmm. And their experience is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'll, I'll qualify it with that. I'm, I'm not sure if that's actually the case that, that we've, been, we've been too conservative mm-hmm. uh, on teams, but that would be the one thing where I can, I can think of a couple of firms we've not committed because we thought there was not enough mm. experience and track record. Mm. Not going to get you to say it, name. <laughs> no, I'd rather not. Uh, I, 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 quite a few come to mind, but I, I don't think it would be fair. Uh, I, I will say that we've taken a bet on quite a few early stage firms yeah. as well and have done really well with it. So, yeah. so over the last five years, we have taken this proactive approach to doing smaller funds, doing people with less track record, but trying to think of who they are. So no, I'm, I'm, I'd rather not put a, a specific <laughs> nah, because enough. so many come to mind that I don't want to offend nah, the ones I, I don't mention. We all have an anti portfolio manager. One day, <laughs> one day you'll you'll confess to yours. No, but I think you know you brought up a lot of good points. You know, like the structure of funds, how they work, expectations, KPIs. Obviously, cash matters in terms of returns uh, and why experienced teams can help shortcut an evaluation because you, you already have data that you can use as opposed to having to take a bet on people that, that don't have a track record on deal flow or anything like that. Just to, to wrap up sort of some of the, the attributes of a fund, what are the KPIs that you track in a fund? Uh, and, and are those relevant year on year or are those relevant only after a certain period? And how does that affect, do you, do you know of any fund managers that make decisions differently because they know they're going to go out fundraising? On the, on the, on the BC fund manager yeah, side, you BC mean? Yeah, BC fund manager side, yeah. They make different decisions because they're going to go fundraising. Yeah. No one will ever admit to it. But I think there is a temptation. When you go to fundraise, you want to show good returns. Yeah. And there is a temptation for some to optimize for short-term boost yeah. during a fundraising period, uh, which may compromise longer-term returns. Through what? Through, through selling companies or through... It, it, marking the valuations differently or what? No, I think marking valuations is pretty transparent. Selling at the end of the day, you're not always in control. Yeah. You can be a little bit more aggressive or not in your expectations. Yeah. But you can maybe invest in some companies where you know that there's going to be a quick uplift versus 
betting more for, for the longer term. To be honest, in venture, we don't see it that much. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to play around with the numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we don't really see it a lot. No. Other than brand name, what recommendation would you give founders on how they can audit a VC? I mean, if they could spend time with you, obviously that would be a shortcut, but short of that, is there any public resource that you think is a good proxy for that? I actually think that I'm really, I'm not a good reference for founders because I, I see VCs from the other side. My premise is when, when you're working closely with someone, it needs to be someone that you, you can work with. Yeah. And that, as, as cheesy as it sounds, means you, you need to have a relationship where you can be completely honest with each other yeah. uh, without being judged. And you can agree to disagree and yeah. move on and still be on the same side and fight for the same cause. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, having said that, how do you find VCs that, that fill that? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think most of the founders you, you, you speak to probably know this better than I, but I would say try to pull your network, right? Who have this VC worked with where things didn't go well? Mm-hmm. That's typically Typically, those are the founders we like to talk to, right? Mm-hmm. If you talk to the, the founder who sold a company for 500 million, he'll talk very, very nicely of his VCs because it was a good outcome. Mm-hmm. If the founder whose company didn't work out and, and had to lay off some people, which I think must be one of the most difficult uh, processes to go through, and rethink his or her plan and, and project and start over again... If that founder gives a VC a good reference, then I think you're on to something very important. Yeah. Uh, but I think that goes for everything in life. It does, yeah. Okay, well, we always like to wrap up with some fun questions that pertain to you. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I think flying. Flying. Yeah. No more air miles. No more air miles. No, I think more kind of, more kind of being able to physically as well step above a situation, remember the context and the perspective of where you are, and, and also put that into more the softer content, the way you are, I think could be very helpful. Talking Plus about, super practical. Yeah, super practical. So if we're talking about where we are, if you look back 50 years from now to today, what will we look back on in your opinion and think, oh my gosh, how did we let that happen? You know, we look back now 100 years and we think that slavery was ridiculous and how did we ever let that happen as a, a human race? What do you think 50 years from now we'll be looking back on uh, LPGP fund structures or? Oh, no, I'm, I was somewhere completely different. I, I, uh, I've got small kids and I, and I think in 50 years they will be telling our generation that how can you let, let this happen to our planet? Yeah, ecology. Um, I think ecology, just the way we treat the environment is horrible. We all know it, but we're not able to put together incentives for ourselves as a society to fix it. All right, so I don't ask this question to a lot of people because it, it just doesn't present itself as an opportunity, but you just, like the, the conversation we just had plus this answer you gave, begs it. And that is, how do you think we will ever come to terms with aligning capitalism with the ecological impact of shareholder return, the, the endless pursuit of shareholder return? Do you think that there is an explosion that will eventually happen in a form of index that correlates to ecological exploitation, which then fund managers will be judged by to look at a successfully, even if the ultimate shareholder return is diminished because they're not pursuing just outright gain? So I, th- I don't think that there will be an explosion as such to align those mm. interests, unfortunately. I do think that if you take a long-term, and I mean now very long-term perspective, I think capitalism and our environment are perfectly aligned. Mm. But as long as you optimize for 
short-term gains and short-term in this context can be five or 10 years, right? But as long as you optimize for short-term gains, I, I think you have a problem. If we could find a way of having a system where part of people's compensation and incentive structures were more 25, 30, 50 years, then I think you'd see something totally different. How that's going to happen, I don't see. You don't see it. Unfortunately. Well, let's hope, let's hope that we can figure it out sooner rather than later. And with that, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a record long conversation, but it's been amazing. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I think you answered a, a lot of questions in, in good depth. So thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot, Carlos. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.